You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Keep your Bibles turned to uh, James chapter 5, and we're going to look at that passage together this morning. Um, Sunday school, can you imagine the Sunday school lady forgot to dismiss you? (laughs) I've heard that a few times from Sunday school ladies. She said, they forgot to dismiss the Sunday school kids. Okay. (laughs) All right, so James chapter 5, and we're going to continue in that passage there from uh, verse 7 to 12. Last week, and a bunch of you were in holiday mode last week, so I hope you read the few verses before, which are very challenging verses that that, uh, Darcy spoke to us about. We considered this really powerful warning in James chapter 5, verse 1 to uh, 6, on a warning to rich oppressors who were cheating and persecuting the poor. And in particular, they were persecuting the marginalized Christians that James was writing to. So in this passage before us this morning, it follows, James turns from those who oppress, the oppressors, he turns to the message towards those that were suffering because of oppression. He turns from words of warning to the oppressors to be careful to words of encouragement to the oppressed. So he turns from scolding the wolves to strengthening the sheep. And in their suffering and trouble, there's the possibility that these afflicted Christians will respond harshly, will will attack back, and will act violently towards their oppressors. And so James wants them to be clear that that is not the Christian approach. There is a better approach. So very firmly, just as he condemns the wolves, he directs the sheep to take a different path, a different approach to suffering. So let me ask you a question this morning. How do you respond when there is suffering in your life? How do you respond when you run into issues of troubles and difficulties and trials? It could be just run-of-the-mill trouble, like an inconsiderate supervisor at work, or an unfair teacher. I can't imagine those exist, but you know. Um, Or maybe it's just a toddler that won't sleep at night. Or perhaps, how do you respond to more severe trouble, like a major medical condition or a relationship that's falling apart? Or even like these friends of James, how do you respond when you begin to experience opposition because of your Christian faith? So I think there's at least four different ways that most of us respond. There's probably more, but these are four basic ways that, that most of us respond that we default. This is the default we go to when we run into trouble. And the first is we default to anger. Some of us are are just, oh, we get mad. And our anger can quickly turn into revenge, a desire to get even. And there's hardly a week goes by in our region here, and we're not that big an area, when there's not a story on on uh, on the news feed about a road rage incident. And some of them, the one recently was incredibly serious. It started with somebody cutting someone else off. And before they were finished, one guy had stabbed the other at the side of the road. Vengeance. The oppressed Christians that James wrote to, they could have responded in anger. But the scripture is very clear. No matter how we feel, and feelings and anger, anger and feelings, they're all wrapped up. Vengeance is not our path. So in Romans 12, verse 17, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, Repay no one evil for evil. Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, never take revenge. And then even more, 
Romans 12, verse 20, incredibly strong verse, and one that convicts us. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Or the gold standard of how to manage our anger is the example of Jesus. 1 Peter 2, verse 23, the apostle Peter writing, when he, that is Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So there's the first response. Something bad comes into our life. Little things, big things, people, stuff, <clears throat> anger. Okay, second response to trouble, despair. So if some of us get angry, some of us have the opposite response. Now, I suppose we could do a little personality analysis, but I've got to get finished on time. But here's the other personality. Some of us have the opposite response. We catastrophize. The end has come. You know, gloom and doom. This will never end. I give up. We fold our cards. We go home. We take our marbles. We leave the sandbox. Despair. Third response. Anger despair. Here's the third. This is my, this true confessions here, repair, anger, despair, repair. This is my go-to, right? I don't know if there's any other fix-it guys out there. When troubles and trials hit my life or my family's life or my wife's life, I kick into the fix-it mode. Harold will fix it. Um, now, to defend myself and the rest of my fix-it friends, um, it's not all bad. MacGyver was a good guy. And indeed, with a little ingenuity, some things can be fixed. But here's Harold's problems. Some things cannot be fixed, at least not easily. And maybe some of you can identify with the relationship at our house, but on more than one occasion, I've received this correction. Harold, I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to listen. Ouch. <laughs> okay, here's the fourth approach. Anger, despair, repair. Fourth approach, ignore it. Just pretend the trouble does not exist, and maybe it will go away. Let's not talk about it. Let's forget it. I, don't you love the stuff that's on T-shirts? Sometimes I think people think I'm weird. You know, you look in, what does that T-shirt say? Um, sometimes they say cool things. I saw a T-shirt a while ago, and here's what it said. It said, denial works for me. <laughs> How do you respond to the troubles in your life? Anger, despair, repair, denial. Well, James has a better but much more challenging approach to suffering, an approach which will take us to a better place, but it's not easier. Maybe let me just digress briefly. This isn't the notes. There's a whole lot of stuff in life that's better, but it's not easier. And this week we've just walked through a journey of death, and it's not easy, but it needs to be done. And there's a whole lot of things in life like that. We just can't escape them. Let's read together James 5, verse 7. And here's what the writer of James says. He says, Be patient, therefore, and this is kind of the key to the whole passage. Be patient, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. So James encourages that we make patience our default. There's number five, and that one doesn't come easy. And notice, this is not a temporary response that we only take on some occasions. It's a response for all Christians at all times, until the end of time, until the coming of the Lord. For the coming of the Lord will not only bring complete liberation to every suffering Christian, the Lord's coming is also a promise of justice and judgment to all who oppress. 
The promise of ultimate justice is, as the passage says, at hand, right at the door. So if patience is to be our new default in times of trouble, the question I've asked this morning is, what is patience? And why is it so important? The Cambridge Dictionary defines it this way. Patience is the ability to wait or to continue doing something despite difficulties or to suffer without complaining or becoming annoyed. The word here used for patience in James 5 verse 7, the Greek word translated actually means a long temper or a long fuse. Patience is someone who doesn't blow up quickly. Someone who has patience does not blow up quickly. Psychologist Dr. Sherry Campbell says that patience is the engine that drives consistent positive outcomes. She says this, when we lack patience, we are unable to delay gratification for more than a moment which is like a child. And this fills us with frustration, and frustration is the emotional energy that drives quitting. She also points out that patience lies at the root of good decision-making. She says this, when we are patient, we are able to make wise choices that take the big and the small picture into account. And patience puts us in control of ourselves, when we are patient, we give ourselves time to choose how to respond to an event rather than getting hijacked by our emotions. For example, when as a parent or a grandparent, I deal with the temper tantrum of an out-of-control, uh, illogical toddler. Christian counselor Dr. Thomas Barbian says this. He says, patience transforms relationships. It helps us to avoid saying crazy things, nasty things, that are going to be destructive. Barbian says, when you are impatient, you are focused inward on you. When you are patient, you are fo focused outward, able to think and care for the needs of the other person. Patience positively impacts your health, your attitude, and your gratitude. Dr. Campbell concludes her thoughts with this. Patience develops excellence. We fulfill our potential with patience, and this is no small thing, for the world desperately needs the best of what each of us has to offer. Success always begins with patience. Now, you can understand why in our bathroom for many years there's been a little plaque hanging in the wall that says, give me patience, but please hurry. Now, someone might say, is patience a gift that some of us have, some of us don't, or is it a command? Is patience a gift or a command? Well, I think as Christians, it's both. In Galatians 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, it tells us that one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. But in our passage before us today, it's not a gift, it's a command. We are told to, in James' fashion, be patient. I like this. How do we put those two things together, the gift and the command? It has been well said that God supplies us with the resources we need to obey the commands he gives us. Isn't that good? God supplies us with the resources we need to obey the commands that he gives us. So patience is both a gift and a command. So the question remains, how do I develop patience? If it's a good thing, how do I do it? And there's a simple but difficult answer. We need to exercise our patience muscles. We need to use patience, to choose patience, so that patience becomes a habit. 
So in James 5, verse 7 to 11, we have some, not so much an instruction manual on how to be patient, but an inspiration from people who have been patient, who have practiced patience, who have developed their patience muscles. And so we have three inspirational examples to follow. Verse 7, example of the patience of the Old Testament prophets. Verse 11 is the example of the patience of Job. Let's begin with the first example. Read with me James chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, <clears throat> being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. First example of patience, the example of the farmer. And the key phrase is in verse 7, see how the farmer waits. Here's my first point. Patience is learning to wait. I was in a friend's home recently, and uh, this inspirational plaque caught my eye. It said this, the day you plant the seed is not the day you eat the fruit. Now, many things have changed in farming over 2,000 years, but this fact still remains. To reap the harvest, you need to wait. For grain, you need to wait a few months. For apples, an apple tree, you need to wait years before the tree will bring fruit. The ancient farmer needed to wait for two key things. They needed to wait for an early rainfall after planting so as to germinate the seed, and they needed to wait for a late rain before the harvest <clears throat> to fully ripen the crop. Without the rain, there would be no harvest. Now, there was not much. There was much. There were a lot of things a farmer could do. He could cultivate the soil. He could trim the trees. <clears throat> excuse me. He could pull the weeds. He could protect against pests and rodents. But there were two things a farmer could not do. No matter how hard he worked, no matter how much he worried, he could not bring the rains, and he could not ripen the crops. The farmer could only wait. And that's why the farmer is an inspiration for patience. Now, just a short aside, I said there wasn't much a farmer could do. I suppose there was something else a farmer could do. A farmer could complain. And at verse 9, it says, do not grumble against one another. You know, in times of trouble and problems, when there's nothing we can do, there's always the temptation to grumble, to complain about our circumstances, to blame someone else for it, uh, to irritate one another. And James says, don't go there. Grumbling is a destructive waste of energy. <clears throat> so there's the lesson of the farmer. Patience is learning to wait. And in the case of the farmer, it's just not waiting that is hard. It's the uncertainty of the waiting that is hard. We can't know with 100% certainty. We certainly can't what the future brings. Will the early rains come? And even if they do come, will the late rains come? Um, and even then, there's no guarantee there's going to be a harvest. Waiting would be easier, a lot easier, if we knew with certainty that all would be good. Last fall, I came down with a really nasty flu, like I'd never had before, and with it an even nastier sciatica, which I had never had anything like that before either. And after 42 years of working as a chiropractor, treating patients with all kinds of back pain, now I was the patient, or should I say I was the impatient. 
And after a month or so, I was kind of managing my pain during the day, but nighttime, that was a different issue. If you can't get comfortable, you can't sleep. And I couldn't get comfortable in bed. So for weeks, the only way I could get comfortable and get a little sleep was on the Lazy Boy recliner in the living room. Because uh, I was wrapping into my blanket on the recliner, and Sharon was making her way up the stairs. She was feeling a little miffed, and she said, are you never going to get better? And you know, about that time, I was wondering that too. <laughs> and of course, now we laugh about it, and, and we were laughing about it this week, but it, it wasn't very funny right then. Why? Because waiting brings uncertainty. I couldn't know for absolutely certain. And patience is learning to wait. And it goes without saying that waiting is not easy. Perhaps I think <clears throat> the story of the farmer's patient waiting reflects our story as a congregation here at Citizens. And as you're all probably aware, we are only temporary guests in this very spacious building. Um, the plan is for the people to redevelop this property, and so we will have to find a new home. And so on a number of occasions, we've been informed that the end is near. And back in January, it seemed again that our time here was coming to an end. So we looked at other options in the community. We were uncertain what to do. And so one night in January, we got together here, and as a congregation, we prayed, and we waited. And with waiting comes uncertainty. What should we do? Was it time to move on? And then we received the news from our friends at Trinity United Church that we were now welcome to stay due to various circumstances for at least another six months. And that answer brought relief. Temporary relief, no doubt. But it showed us that what we need to do is wait for the next step. And that was the step we took. Patience is waiting, waiting for the next thing to do. And as we wait in faith, we take the next step we are shown. Recently, I came across this quote from Elizabeth Elliot, the, the wonderful missionary writer, speaker. And she said this, does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we're not obeying in the thing that lies before us today? How many momentous events in Scripture depended on one person's seemingly small act of obedience? Rest assured, do what God tells you to do now and depend upon it. You'll be shown what to do next. I think that's for us. Patience is waiting. Now let's continue in the passage, James 5, verse 10 and 11. He continues, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now we have, not the example of the farmer, but the example of the Old Testament biblical prophets. And an Old Testament prophet did not speak what they thought. They did not speak in their own authority. They spoke in the authority of the name of the Lord. They brought God's word to the ancient people that they lived with. They spoke what they knew was true, and then they let the chips fall where they may. Now, needless to say, almost every Old Testament prophet experienced opposition, persecution, or worse. So here's my second point. If patience is learning how to wait, here's the second thing about patience. Patience is steadfast despite opposition. Patience is steadfast despite opposition. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, when he is speaking before the Sanhedrin, just before they blow their top at him and, and stone him to death, 
He says this about the history of ancient Israel and its relationship with its national prophets, Acts 7, verse 52. He says to those people in the Sanhedrin, which of the prophets did your father not persecute? And the answer is, they pretty well persecuted them all. Patience is steadfast despite opposition. And when the ancient Jews thought of the prophets, the prophet, the major prophet they thought of, you think about the Old Testament and all those prophet books, there's two big ones, two major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. But the one they really thought of as the prophet was the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet whose life and teachings we find in the book that bears his name. And what a difficult task he faced. The country was in a desperate shape. It was being invaded by a huge army. And this prophet is called to warn the people that because of their unfaithfulness, he's called to warn the status quo elite, the kings and the leaders of the day, that because of their injustice, destruction is coming, that their armies will be defeated, that their beloved city of Jerusalem will be burned to a crisp, that their sacred temple will be destroyed, that their king will be taken captive by the Babylonian armies of Nebuchadnezzar. And needless to say, this was a message that no one wanted to hear. So Jeremiah faced ridicule. He was called a traitor. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. And there's a crazy story in Jeremiah chapter 38 you might want to look at. Maybe you remember it from Sunday school. He's cast into a muddy cistern. They'd run out of, they had these big tanks where they kept their water. Jerusalem has now run out of water as it's under siege. And so they want to kill Jeremiah. They take him and they throw him down in the cistern. Jeremiah 38, verse 4. Let me read it to you. Then the official said to the king, Let this man, Jeremiah, be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern, and there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. Isn't this gross? And Jeremiah sank in the mud. And if it hadn't been for some friends, he would have died in the mud. Was Jeremiah a traitor to his country? No. Was he guilty of treason? Of course not. He loved his country with all his heart. So why was he persecuted in such a gross way and left to die? Here's why. Only because he had told the king the truth. He had brought God's word to the king. He had said what the powers that be did not want to hear. He had dared to question the status quo of his day. He had dared to differ with the culture of his day. And for that, he paid the price of rejection. But he remained faithful to his convictions no matter the cost. Patience is steadfastness despite opposition. Now, the issues may have changed, but the spirit of the power of the status quo remains. Anyone who dares at any point in history to differ with the given culture of the time will face serious opposition. To dare to question the new cultural norms of our day is to be accused of stubbornness, bigotry, or worse. The new cultural convictions on sex, gender, and marriage demand allegiance. May I say they demand you fly the flag or consequences will follow. 
Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, says this, to object to same-sex marriage, for example, is in the moral registry of our day not substantially different from being a racist. The error when Christians could disagree with the broader convictions of the secular world and yet still find themselves respected as decent members of society at large is coming to an end. Now, I, I recommend that book to you, Strange New World. You can get it on Christian Books or Amazon. Give a little Google. It's about $15. And it's well worth reading and understanding how our culture got to where it is today and how, as Christians, we should respond to it. British scholar Theo Hobson summarizes it all very succinctly, and here's what he says in three points, which you ought to memorize, because this is the life and the world in which we live. Here's number one. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And those of us who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Patience is steadfast despite opposition. Now, let me come to one final illustration given here in James. James 5, verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Patience is learning to wait. Patience is steadfast despite opposition. But the example of Job, this story found in the Old Testament book that bears his name, is, is another story. He is a man who experiences a myriad of undeserved suffering. And yet in it all, he refused to throw in the towel. In spite of the loss of his wealth, in spite of the loss of his health, he refused to give up his faith. We have a saying today that says, that person has the patience of Job. But his patience was certainly not a gentle, quiet patience. It wasn't docile. It was rather combative. And when you read through the book, it's rather feisty. And when his friends come to encourage him, they weren't very helpful. They simply parroted the, the common wisdom, the status quo of their age. And here it was. Job, people who suffer like you must in some way deserve it. They must be hiding secret sins they, because people are reaping what they deserve. And uh, some help that was. But even in his miserable state, Job defends himself. He doesn't claim to be perfect, but he vigorously defends his innocence. And as if his encouraging friends weren't, you know, his friends weren't encouraging enough, his wife was even less encouraging. In Job chapter 2, verse 9, she says, curse God and die. That was her words of wisdom. But Job ignored the wisdom of his friends. He ignored the wisdom of his family. And in spite of all his sufferings, in spite of all odds, he hung on to his faith. And in the end, because of his endurance, because of his steadfastness, because of his, his patience, he experienced God's blessing, his compassion, and his mercy. Patience is learning to wait. Patience is steadfast despite opposition. And here's the lesson from Job. Above all, Job displayed patience is steadfast even in suffering. Contemporary Christian singer-songwriter Laura Story found herself in a place she did not want to go. And in her book, When God Doesn't Fix It, she tells of how her dream life with her best friend and her new husband, Martin, became a living nightmare. From perfect health to a diagnosis of a brain tumor, 
From the complications of brain surgery to the realization that her big, strong, athletic husband was never going to be the same again. He had to learn to eat. He had to learn to walk again, literally one step at a time. And for Laura, it was a crash course in patience, learning to be patient with her husband who kept asking the same thing, five, you know, the same question five times in five minutes. She needed to be as patient with her husband as she would be with a toddler. Patience is steadfast even in suffering. Here's what Laura writes. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying here. God didn't give Martin a brain tumor, so I would learn to be more patient. Brain tumors entered the world when sin entered the world, but God wastes nothing. I rarely choose patience and grace over anger and annoyance, yet I've learned that even though they aren't my automatic response to situations, the more I practice patience and grace, the better I get. And so Laura asks this convicting question. So why wouldn't God use the trials in my life to teach me patience? And it was out of that difficult journey of suffering and loss, but also renewal, patience, and grace that Laura wrote this very beautiful song. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace, comfort for our family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear, and we cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? And what if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies? in disguise. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that patience does not come easily to us. It is so easy to be impatient, to grumble, to become anxious, to quit. May the fruit of your Spirit be found in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience. Give us the strength to obey your commands, and may the patience of the suffering Savior be found in my life. For we pray it in his name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.